Ending small business failure. Welcome to the Small Biz Chat Podcast with the number one small business expert, Melinda Emerson. Melinda's goal is to end small business failure, and she'll give you the information you need to succeed and live the life you dream of. Now, here's the small biz lady herself, Melinda Emerson. Hi, this is Melinda Emerson, the small biz lady, and you're listening to the Small Biz Chat Podcast. I am so excited to have my guest today. She is an old friend and mentor, and I'm so thrilled that she's here with us. She is author and journalist, Alilia Bundles. She writes biographies about the amazing women in her family, including entrepreneur Madam C.J. Walker and Harlem Renaissance icon, Alilia Walker. She is the author of the New York Times notable book, own Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, and it was the inspiration for Self Made, the fictionalized four-part series starring Oscar winner Octavia Spencer that recently premiered on Netflix. She's currently working on her fifth book, The Joy Goddess of Harlem, Alilia Walker, who, by the way, is her great-great-grandmother, excuse me, her great-grandmother, and she was an icon in the Harlem Renaissance, and she is going to talk about how who she partied with, her arts patronage, and her travels that really helped define the Harlem Renaissance era. Now, you know, in her spare time, that's what she's been doing, but prior to that, she had a 30-year career as an executive and Emmy Award-winning producer with ABC and NBC News, and she is the brand historian for the Madam C.J. Walker line of hair care products inspired by Madam C.J. Walker, created by Sundial Brands, and she also is a graduate of Harvard and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and I could laud her accomplishments all day, but I will not do that because I want you guys to hear her. She's such an amazing storyteller, and I'm so excited that she's here with us to talk entrepreneurship from her about her great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker. So, Alilia, welcome to Small Biz Chat. Melinda, it is so good to be with you and to realize that we've known each other for almost 30 years. So this I is met you when I was 12. Tell them the wait, truth. Wait, that's right. <laughs> when, you were, when you were 12, when you were 12. And I'm just, uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, I'm oh. a fangirl for you and all the things that you're doing. So thank you for what oh. you're doing. Well, listen, I, I am so excited to talk to you because... You know, you wrote the definitive biography of beauty pioneer Madam C.J. Walker, who was the first woman, white or black, right, to become a millionaire in the United States. What an incredible legacy. And she's your great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, right? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that the Guinness Book of World Records makes that claim. And so I'm like, fine that they make that claim. But for me, it really is a family story, but it's also the story of the journey of African-Americans in the United States and women becoming entrepreneurs. So I grew up in a household where my mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, and I would go with her to her office And I saw a woman in business from a very early time in my life. And then to really delve into the history of Madam Walker and see the struggles that she had, how she developed a business. But I think what is most important for me is how she empowered other women and helped them become economically independent. So let's talk about that. So Madam C.J. Walker started her company in 1906 right? Mm -hmm. So now life for African-Americans in the United States in the early 1900s 
was that of there certainly were some that at that point were getting educated through some of the historically black colleges and things like that. But by and large, in the early 1900s, the average life of an African-American was what? That of a washerwoman, maybe a teacher, you know, having children, being somebody's wife. I mean, what were, what were the options for the average African-American persons, particularly women, at that time? So, yeah, just to just put it in perspective, this is the first generation of people born after the end of the Civil War. So there were still people alive who had been enslaved and their children were creating this next generation of Black communities, entrepreneurs, some getting education. But 90 percent of African-Americans still lived in the South. So a lot of people were still working on farms and in what was still really a form of slavery as sharecroppers. When they came to the cities, most were employed as maids and laundresses and cooks. A very small group actually were owning their own businesses and going to college. But those people were creating these communities like Wall Street, like Wall Street in Tulsa. And we've learned so much about that lately. But that was going on in many communities around the country, Black people were creating their own businesses. And Madam Walker really tapped into the fact that women were moving to the cities and they wanted to do something other than be somebody's maid. So now let's talk about that. So a lot of the reason why Black people were creating businesses was because they weren't allowed to patronize white businesses. Was that, I mean, that was really what kind of was that's right. People were people were kept out of businesses. We weren't being hired. We weren't able to go to to certainly most of the predominantly white institutions. There might be one or two people. But our businesses, we had to create our own businesses because we weren't getting loans from banks. They weren't, you know, they were redlining our neighborhoods, keeping us from buying property, pushing us into the worst slums of every city. But there were people who were innovative enough and entrepreneurial enough that they were creating banks and funeral homes and barbershops and beauty shops and real estate companies. So when Madam Walker, for instance, went to the National Negro Business League convention in 1912, there were a few hundred African-Americans from all over the United States who were there talking about their businesses, about newspapers they were publishing, about the other kinds of things they were doing to make a difference in their communities. So talk to me about her business. Like, how did her business empire work? What what was she selling and, and how did she get these Walker agents that were all over the place? So, you know, when you think about what she actually created, her Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower. So there's a picture of that hair grower right behind me. That was her original packaging. But her real, pro- she was solving a personal problem, which is often how a business starts. At a time when most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing, they had really bad scalp infections. So they didn't bathe very often, which we don't like to think about very much, maybe once a week. But at they, women often uh, sometimes only wash their hair once a month. So you can imagine what kind of dandruff you might have. So those scalp infections were what she was really working on. She developed a shampoo and then an ointment like a Vaseline that contained sulfur. And, the, and that was a medicinal ingredient that healed the infection. So then once your hair was healthy, I mean, once your scalp was healthy, your hair could grow back. Hence, Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower. Thousands of women had the same problem. And so that's how she began her business. So she started off small, selling door to door, but then quickly began to travel around the country with her third husband, Charles Joseph Walker, 
who knew something about promotion and advertising. They traveled all over they, in, from St. Louis to Denver and then throughout the southern and eastern United States, settling in Pittsburgh in 1908 when she opened her first beauty school, Lelia College of Beauty Culture. And then that's 1908. And then for the next decade, she is developing agents, training agents throughout the United States and really using some of the examples that still, some of the tips that still work today in terms of marketing and advertising and training. So she was one of the first like direct marketers, right? Because she basically empowered women to become sort of like licensed agents of her organization and they would get product wholesale from her and sell it in their local communities. So, you know, know, and I think direct sales has been around, you know, as you know, for a very long time, but Madam Walker really tapped into like the perfect timing of black women during one of those early migrations to the cities. And these were women who wanted to work for themselves because working in somebody else's home was actually quite dangerous. You know, we joke about, you know, the house Negroes, but if you worked in somebody's home, your body was not really safe, especially if you had to live in. So she wanted to give these women an alternative because she had been that woman as a washerwoman, but she she had learned a lot from the women of her church. When she first moved to St. Louis in 1888, she joined St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And people who know something about the AME Church know that it was the women of the church and the choir and the missionary society who often reached out to poor women like Sarah Breedlove, the washerwoman, and began to mentor them and give them visions of themselves as something to, and that they could aspire to other things. So that's where she began to learn this power of women in organizations. That might, again, my missionary society, the choir, and then the National Association of Colored Women met in her church. They were founded before the NAACP. This was a national network of women, primarily doing you know, social work and founding kindergartens and old folks' homes. But that power of women working collectively served as an example to her as she developed her own sales agents. So when she began to, when she was in Denver, she realized that that market was going to be really small because there weren't a lot of Black people in Colorado, just as there are now. And her market was Black women and Black women's heads. So as she traveled around, she began to develop this network through churches, through fraternal organizations, through women's organizations. She would take out an ad in the newspaper that she was getting ready to go to. And it's stunning when you think she didn't have Instagram. She didn't have the, <laughs> you know, the internet. But she had black newspapers. So she'd take out an ad and say, I'm coming to town. And then she would give a lecture that was about current events and black education. And she had what was called a stereopticon, which was an early version of PowerPoint. She had glass slides, which were projected. So she would do a big lecture to maybe three or 400 people. And then after the lecture, she would meet with 10 to 15 women in a smaller group and demonstrate her Madam Walker system of hair care. And as she did that, as she lectured and taught them, she would see who was the woman who had some charisma? Who was the person who others looked up to? Who asked the best questions? And she would make that person her lead sales agent in that town. So that was her way of developing a sales force. Mm, Interesting, interesting, interesting. So you believe that she drove, what drove her 
to this business really was, it sounds like more like women's empowerment more than anything else, like to help women not have to be servants and, and, and washerwomen and, and things like this. Absolutely. And, you know, she had, I think, first was introduced to the hair care industry through her brothers who were barbers in the late, late 1800s when black men dominated the barbering trade. And then after her hair began to fall out, she worked for a period of time for Annie Malone, the woman who founded the Poro Company. So she was her sales agent. And then she decided to go into business for herself. There were other companies, Black-owned and white-owned companies, that had had the similar formula long before even, even either Annie Malone or Madam Walker. But that was, she realized she wanted to be on her own, that she could do this on her own. And she, I think as she saw the difference that she made, you know, once people felt better about their hair, once their hair grew back, she was kind of, yes, she had accomplished that issue, but she realized that what really needed to be done was to give women confidence and economic independence because she'd been a woman who had been dependent on others and she could see that being able to make your own money was a, made a huge difference in people's lives. So when you think about, you know, the book that you wrote on, you know, on her own ground, the life and times of Madam C.J. Walker. And I know that it was re-released early this year under the name self-made to coincide with the, with the, with the Netflix series, the four part Netflix series, which, which many of us watched the opening weekend, you know, (laughs) I certainly did and made sure that I, that I shared it around. But what would you say now thinking about her and all that she did, what would you say is her enduring legacy? Like, you know, people still talk about her. She's been gone a long time and, and, and you know, people still talk about her. But what, what would you say is her enduring legacy? Well, I think that because she was so multidimensional, it was a big deal alone to found a company to be a pioneer of what is now a multi-billion dollar international hair care industry. But she had the vision to use the money and the networks and the influence that she had to empower others. And that was as a philanthropist who contributed to the NAACP's anti-lynching movement, who helped to fund Black schools and Black organizations. It was as a patron of the arts. It was as a person who knew that it made a difference if women could create their own independent income because ultimately it created generational wealth. And she, at her convention of her sales agents, In 1917, her very first convention, two years before Mary Kay was born, she gave prizes to the women who had sold the most new most products and brought in the most new agents. But she also gave prizes to the women who contributed the most to charity. And she told them that their first duty was to humanity. So I think that what she saw that she was developing an army of independent, economically independent women who were buying homes, who were educating their children. And I, you know, even to this day, I will meet somebody who was, has a diploma that there was their great aunts, their great, great grandmother's diploma from a Walker school. And they would say, you know, and grandma bought a house that we still own or invested in real estate. Now she, Madam Walker was doing that thing, educating people and helping people buy real estate, which is how American wealth is created. The problem of course, as we know, is that those neighborhoods have been redlined. So she was, she had the right vision, but could not anticipate the evilness <laughs> of the federal government and white supremacy. Sure, 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 sure. And there's so much conversation about that as it, 
as we talk about the sort of racial equity gap and, and just poverty, you know, in general. Now, I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Netflix series itself. I know Self-Made, you say that it's a, it was a fictionalized four-part series for Netflix. And, and I, I really wanted to, to get into that because I was shocked to learn how much of the story was fabricated for TV. And I really want to give you an opportunity to tell me what was true, what wasn't true, and, and how, did, <laughs> how did that even go down? Like, how did they even, how were they even able to do that? Because it was based on the book that you had done all this research. I mean, your, your book is like one of these like, you know, super thick autobiography books. And I, I realized they couldn't do the whole thing. But I mean, let's let's talk about what happened when when the producers got a hold of your your precious. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Self-made. So, you know, I um I, I will say this first. I thought Octavia Spencer was exactly the right person to play. Oh, Madam yeah. Walker. She was really strong in the role, but she had to, you know, deal with the script that was given to her. Sure. So I went into this thinking that this was going to be something that would make me feel proud and that would inspire other people. And my book was optioned, as often happens with a Hollywood, you know, production, that the author is really kind of pushed to the side. Now that doesn't happen all the time, but in my case, unfortunately, even though it started out with me trying to be involved and feeling that I was going to be involved, the head writer who was retained by the production company, Nicole Jefferson Asher, decided she didn't want my input because I didn't agree with her desire to make it into a soap opera. And when I had one conversation with her in 2015, when this was starting out, and I thought we were having just, you know, like, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what you're thinking. Let's, you know, happy to exchange information. And at some point during the conversation, she said that she saw the conflict between Madam Walker and Annie Malone, who in real life was Madam Walker's rival, as the spine of the story. And I'm sure I said, as I have often said to people, well, I think that's an interesting piece, but it's, for me, certainly not the central part of Madam Walker's life, nor Annie Malone's life. They were both successful entrepreneurs and philanthropists. And when I said that, apparently, she decided that she was going to do everything she could to keep me out of the conversation, and which she was successful in doing for two years. But as it got closer to the time for production, the one thing that I had in the contract, because you, you, know, you sell your book, and you try to negotiate things, and they try to keep you out, and you try to push something in. And the one thing that I did have was what's called script review. It, did, it meant that I couldn't veto things, but I did have the right to review the script. So the scripts were sent to me, and when I received the first script, and I saw that this was essentially Real Housewives of Atlanta and not Hidden Figures, wow. which is what I had been hoping for, I was appalled. And the thing that I did with each script was to give my notes and say, I really don't think this is going to fly. There are a lot of people who have expectations. This is really inaccurate. I think this is implausible. I think this is really distorting. And I won a few arguments and I did not win most of them. 
And the things that they kept saying to me, well, this is, you know, you just, you don't know anything about television, even though I worked in television for 30 years. I was about to say, you were a television executive for 30 years. Like you, you worked for, I mean, that's, that's implausible that they they didn't know what you It was insulting, but it was this sort of, well, you know, you, we know better than you. And I said, I don't think so. And so I held back as I have wrote in my undefeated essay, I didn't come out right when the sh- when the show got gave it a few days a, a couple of weeks to see where things were going and black twitter raised exactly the objections that i had had right they tore it up yeah no i i saw some of that and and i but i still was like we got to support it right because we were so excited to see madam cj walker's story finally be told that way and I did think Octavia Spencer was masterful playing her and I appreciated Blair Underwood playing her husband too I must say that uh with his lovely self um but you know. I, yes absolutely and, you know, and I, I will say I especially I love that that was her love interest and I'm very grateful too to Blair Underwood because when they were in Toronto filming, he called me to ask to try to do a little bit more research on C.J. Walker. So he was doing what I think the you know the best actors do, which is to do their research to try to get a little bit more underneath the surface. Again, he had to deal with the script that was given to him, but he had the integrity to want to know more. So I just, it's a missed opportunity. You know, there are things that I did like, like I think the market scene where Madam Walker is trying to convince the other women, I think that's a lovely touch. I loved the wigs. I thought the wigs were great. No, I thought the hair was good. Now, you know, a lot of times they jack up black actresses in movies. They jack us up. I mean, even even when the movies are celebrating us, our hair does not always, like Girls Trip, I wanted to scream when I saw the movie Girls Trip about the hair. The hair was problem but yeah so I, I mean I get it I think the costuming was masterful too I loved the period clothing that was worn but I, I remember reading one thing that like they acted like her daughter was a lesbian in the movie and that wasn't really true that was all right. for theater you know almost nothing about almost nothing about the character was accurate I mean a mother-daughter relationship for me should have been a central part of the story, you know, how they navigated life. But the Esther character was entirely made up. I don't know why they put that in there because the real life conflict is so much more interesting that Alelia Walker had two boyfriends, both doctors, both handsome. Her mother liked one better than the other because he was more of a good guy. She ultimately ended up marrying them both over time. But, you know, so that for me was, a you know, I'm writing about that in the, you know, the biography of a Lily Walker. That's like real, real drama. The, the f- fact that they had this first, the guy, John Robinson, she was married to him for a few years, but they were only together for a few months. So he never moved to Indianapolis, which means there was never a fire that burned down the factory. And then they had this, for me, which was just kind of silly, having uh, the Alilia Walker character trying to sing in a, you know, the, in front of this party. When I will tell you, when I interviewed Alberta Hunter, the very famous blues singer, who was a, one of Alilia Walker's good friends, she told me that Alilia Walker had a beautiful singing voice. So they, t- and I mentioned that during the scripting process, and they totally ignored me. So this was just, I don't know what their agenda was. 
Mm, interesting, interesting. But that, that must have been hard because you worked so hard to tell the story, to do all the research, to tell the story accurately. And when you, when you sell your story to people, though, you really lose control. Right. That's basically the moral really of the story. Control. And it, you know, and it really it depends on the people. So it you don't have to lose control, but if there is a person who is intent upon leaving you out of the process, they will be able to do that because they're in LA, they're in the writer's room, they're having the meetings, you know, you're not there. Though I will say I believe that I am going to have another opportunity to tell this story again. Right. You know, as I finish this book on Alelia Walker, I think there will be another series. There are other platforms on which to tell the story. And I know that I, this will not happen again in exactly the same way. And it is, I mean, you know, it, it, when you're in business, when you live long enough, there's stuff that doesn't go right. Sure, <laughs> I mean, this sure. is part of yeah. life. So I feel like, okay, you know, I didn't get what I wanted on this and a lot of things went wrong and there was a lot of stuff that I really, really did not like, but I'm a big girl and <laughs> there will be other moments. I just, I, I'm, I I'm more right. heartbroken for the people, the mothers who wanted to watch it with their daughters. I'm heartbroken for people who really need to know black history. For F.B. Ransom, who was terribly misportrayed as if he were, you know, a guy who had taken a vow as a young man to never drink, smoke, or gamble is portrayed as a person who bet on the numbers and had illegal money to invest in the Walker Company, which wasn't true. I, I, my heart is broken for Booker T. Washington's family members who know that he was misportrayed. So those things, while it is my family, and I know people say to me, oh, it's your family, and you, you know, it must really you know, be a problem for you. Uh, yeah, I don't like it because I know that the real story is so much more interesting, but I'm heartbroken for all the other people. Right, right. Well, I, I'm excited about the next movie, right? I'm excited about the 10 part series, not the four part series. How about that? So I, right. I, you know, you let me know, I'm gonna have a party, a watching party at my house for the next one. Okay, I want you to know that. But I, I really, no, we will, we will be, it will be different. It will be different. <laughs> I know that. But you know, my mother always says that you get to pay for the lesson the first time. That's what she told me. And I have known in my 21 years of being in business, I know that to be true for sure. Now, listen, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about your great grandmother. I, I want to know a little bit more about Alilia Walker because you are her namesake, right? You were named after her. Exactly, exactly. F was my mother. So we are three Alelias. So the great grandmother and then my grandmother, May, and my mother, Alelia, and then I'm Alelia. But okay. yeah, I, you know, I actually was, as a young person, much more interested in Alelia Walker. Our birthdays are almost the same. She's born on June 6th and I'm born on June 7th. And my grandfather had all of these books that had been in her apartment in New York when Alelia Walker died in 1931. My grandmother, May, moved the contents of one of her homes to Indianapolis, her baby grand piano that, was it, that ended up being in our living room, her silverware, her linen, you know, furniture, and these books that had been part of this salon she started called The Dark Tower. So as a Black kid in high school in a predominantly white school in the late 60s, as I was discovering Black literature, there were books that were autographed by Langston Hughes and Gene Toomer and Count Cullen. And wow. so I was trying to write about those people as I was, you know, I loved writing. I wanted to, you know, be inspired by those folks. So she was really my first interest. Madam Walker was complicated. 
because she was, it was about hair. And this is a, when everybody was trying to have an Afro. So I really gravitated towards, towards Alelia Walker. And, you know, and I have, and I think one of the things when I was writing On Her Own Ground, I was developing the relationship between mother and daughter. I'm really fortunate that we have hundreds of their letters. So I'm able to have a dialogue with them in the book. And I realized as I was writing the book that Alelia Walker needed her own platform, her own story, because she's kind of been put into a little box of, you know, Madam Walker made the money. She spent the money. She had parties during the Harlem Renaissance, the end. And she's so much more interesting than that. It wasn't just parties. It was bringing people together, you know, who from uptown, from downtown, from Europe, from Africa, the writers, the actors, the musicians, all of these folks and, and creating a space for them. That was like the most amazing salon you can imagine. And she traveled internationally, London, Paris, Rome, Monte Carlo, Addis Ababa, where she met the Empress, Cairo. So her life is really fascinating. Sounds like it. Now, did she ever have an active role in the business though? Once the business really got up and, you know, really doing Yeah, so work? she, you know, and her, that part of her story is, you know, is also distorted. So she started, remember, she was really a young adult by the time Madam Walker started the business. She was already 20 years old. So she was who she was going to be. But she was on this ride with her mother and she was, of course, expected to work with the business. So she ran the Pittsburgh office and it was really her idea that they have a presence in Harlem. New York was part of her territory when she was running the Pittsburgh office and she traveled to New York. And she said to her mother, we need to buy a building. We need to be in Harlem. So she was the one who had the vision that staking a claim as Harlem was becoming the Mecca for Black culture and politics and business was important. And I think that vision is part of the reason that they are still remembered and even more than their competitors and contemporaries, because by being in Harlem and building this beautiful salon and townhouse and having these homes, that those things endured and they were symbolic of the kind of example. Even in some ways you think it's the, you know, the lost leader, you know, having a having a store on Rodeo Drive. Right. It's that kind of thing. They were in the center of things. Now I know one of the things that that people talked about a lot is this mansion that Madam CJ Walker bought in New York. And can you tell us a little bit about it and and what it meant to her and how long she even lived there before, you know, other people were able to, I think, purchase it later on. But can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? So it's very, you know, it's so exciting when you think they, when Alelia moved to, when Alelia Walker moved to Harlem in 1913, she hired Vertner Tandy, the first licensed black architect in New York, who also was one of the founders of Alpha Phi Alpha. He redesigned this beautiful double townhouse that looked like something more from the east side. And when Madam Walker decided that she was going to move her residence to New York, the company stayed headquartered in Indianapolis, but she moved to New York. And I joke about this, but it's sort of true. The house was too small for two women. (laughs) So, (laughs) So she decided she wanted her own place. And it was to build this mansion in Irvington, New York, in Westchester County, the wealthiest zip code in America. And she had worked so hard. She knew she was sick. 
I mean, she had, you know, high blood pressure, hypertension. She didn't, I don't think she expected to die, but she knew that she was gonna, struggling and she really wanted a place that where she could entertain people and where she could relax. And so she built this house that, and she moved in in May of 1918 and had a big opening party in August of 1918 but died there in May of 1919. So she actually lived in the house for less than a year. But she had a vision that this house would be symbolic, that it would inspire others. And we are really fortunate that it's still standing, that it's a National Historic Landmark. Now, I know that it did it at one point, did it fall into disrepair and it had to be restored? And I mean, there was there's a whole story around kind of what happened at the house. But it has been purchased now, right, by people who are doing entrepreneurship development and things there. So, you know, the house, the house was my grandparents, the estate of after Lily Walker's death, sold the house to a white women's group called Companions of the Forest. And they owned it. Appel, who was a white guy who was, you know, really interested in the history, did a little bit of renovation. Then Harold and Helena Doley, an African-American couple, purchased it in 1993. And they did a great deal of restoration put back the original roof and I uh, had a new NCF designer show house, redid the kitchen. But the house was actually, for a hundred year old house, has actually been in great shape since they began to do the work. And then they sold it to the Madam Walker Foundation, which was created by Richard Dennis, who was the founding CEO of Sundial Brands. And after Rich sold Sundial to Unilever, part of the proceeds were used to create a $100 million venture capital fund for women of color entrepreneurs. So there are some repairs that have to be made now because the house is 100 years old and it's held up by the pandemic. But I, by the end of the year, the, the house should be reopened. But it won't be a house museum. It's not really going to be open to the public because okay. the village, it's not zoned for that. Okay. But it will be a convening space for entrepreneurs. And then I think occasionally opened up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that is really, really great. I know that you have so many things and so many projects that you have worked on over the years related to your family. But I, I what, what is like your favorite Madam C.J. Walker story that, you know, kind of everyone doesn't know? Like, do you have like a, a, a great one from that maybe your mom told you or, you know, something that like just a great story about her that would really kind of leave people with the quintessentialness well, you know, of who we, she was. I, yeah, well, you know, there's there, you know, there are a hundred things, but I do know that 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 things that I love just from reading the letters, like just who she was as a person, and that even after all of this success, there's a letter that she wrote to her attorney, and she was talking about being in the garden at Villa Loaro and getting up early with the sun in the spring and putting on what she called her farmer rat alls and they were like overalls and she's going out and pulling weeds and looking at the bounty and the things that have been grown. So I thought this is a girl you know, who grew up on a cotton farm, cotton plantation and who knew how to farm and knew how to grow greens. And here she is, she's now a millionaire and she still loves putting her hands in the dirt. So that kind of thing I love. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum that she was able to transform herself from this poor, uneducated washerwoman into a political activist to the point where she and Ida B. Wells were spied upon by a black spy <laughs> during World War I and called Negro subversives because they were speaking out 
for the rights of African-Americans and speaking out against lynching. Wow. Wow. So, you know, I can imagine her and Ida B. Wells getting together two two masterful women saying, look, we're not taking this. We got to do something about it. And we don't need no men to do it. We're going to do it. I really, really appreciate your time, you know, sharing just a little bit of, of Madam C.J. Walker with us. I mean, she's an icon. She's an inspiration. I was thrilled that they did the movie about her. I didn't realize how much of it was fiction, but nonetheless, it made people look her up. It made people go buy your book. It made people Google her and, and look at her Wikipedia. And I and I think that is of value if people who've never heard of her know her name. And, and hopefully through this podcast interview, even more people will know about Madam C.J. Walker and about you, my dear friend and mentor, Lilia Bundles. I'm so thrilled that you were able to come by Small Biz Chat and talk to me today. And do you have any party words, any last thoughts, or when can we look out for the new book to come out. I'm just glad to be reconnected with you. And that is one of the great gifts that Madam Walker's story has given to me. The ability to talk with people who are doing interesting things, who are doing meaningful things like you are doing. So I'm just going to keep following what you're doing. Would love for people to, as you say, buy the book on her own ground and Come to my websites, aleliabundles.com and madamcjwalker.com. Sign up for the newsletter, but, you know, just follow me on Instagram and Twitter at aleliabundles because we have a lot of things that we're going to be doing over the next year. The book will be out. The book on Alelia Walker will be out next year, but I've got a lot more in store. All right. Well, I I can't wait. I'm excited. This conversation has jazzed me up. and And I think that it's important to talk about amazing hero women of our past so that we can have inspirations for what we need to do in the future. You know, I'm Melinda Emerson, the Small Biz Lady. You are listening to the Small Biz Chat Podcast. And I will leave you with this. You never lose in business. Either you win or you learn. God bless everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Small Biz Chat Podcast with Melinda Emerson. For more resources and small business success strategies, visit succeedasyourownboss.com. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and join us next Wednesday.